Hey, it's Ange, the host of Schmeitgeist. Since we finished making season one, I have been busy working on a big story for Radio National's background briefing. It's all about the new wave of artificial intelligence that's emerged this year. You might have heard of it. It's known as generative AI. So these are tools that are capable of creating text, images, all kinds of media from scratch. It is also a story about a creepy AI-generated woman who has been haunting the internet. I would tell you more, but it's probably better if you just listen to the story. And if you do like this app, make sure you subscribe to Background Briefing too. There is a new one out every single week. This is an ABC podcast. There's a woman haunting the internet. She looks kind of like she's in her 70s or 60s. It's hard to tell. She looks like she's had a rough life. Her mouth is usually kind of like half open, like she's sobbing. She emerges from nowhere and she stares right out of the screen. As far as I can think of, almost always looking directly at you, yeah. And now she won't leave. They call her Lobe. It kind of looks like she's 3D rendered, like CGI, but she's also lifelike enough to where it kind of looks like a photo of a real person. That's the thing, though. She's not a real person. She doesn't exist. She was dreamt up by artificial intelligence. And no one not even the elite who understand this tech, can explain what she's doing here. I immediately recognised this is an anomaly. This is very strange. This is not a thing that I've ever seen before. The tools that made this woman are part of a new wave of artificial intelligence that creates media from scratch. Images, text, music, even video. It's called generative AI. All year, I've been watching this tech emerge and I've had this growing sense that it's a much bigger story than we're treating it as. Because AI is the curator and the source of so much of what we consume online. So the story of Loeb is actually the story of how our shared reality is constructed. And it's changing very quickly, faster than we can keep track of, and totally beneath our notice. Yeah, I was just sitting at home and I was messing around with AI stuff for several hours a day at that at that time. The artist known as Super Composite is the one who discovered Loeb back in April this year. Her real name is Steph Swanson, and she's part of a new generation of artists who are testing the limits of this tech. Most of what I was doing at that point was just fooling around uh, and seeing what you could make. She was experimenting with generative AI. It's kind of an umbrella term for any tool powered by an artificial neural network that can take a command and use it to create something entirely new based on its own understanding of the world. Steph was using it to make images. And I was actually chatting with my friend and she would send me stuff sometimes that she thought I should put into the AI, different prompts and different things and suggestions to do. The technology can respond to almost any prompt imaginable. Maybe you want to see, I don't know, a portrait of Miss Piggy in the style of Brett Whiteley. Or perhaps a photorealistic tall ship made of bread. Or a 7-Eleven staffed by witches. 
It's all doable and in a matter of seconds. But on this particular day, Steph was using a slightly different technique, something called a negative prompt wait. It's basically asking the AI to show you the conceptual opposite of something by churning out four new images. You might get a photo of a chair, a picture of a galaxy. It's always varied. Her friend suggested another prompt. Of all things, Marlon Brando. I was in my whole, let's make the opposite of everything phase. And so I put that in as a negative prompt and I got this weird logo. The words on the logo were like Digita Pintix and it was like a city skyline. Uh, so I did Digita Pintix skyline logo and did the opposite of that. I was kind of thinking like, oh, it'd be fun to like get a chain of opposites. Like what's the opposite of this? And then take the result of that and take the opposite of that. And what, what do you get to and keep doing this for a long time? But it stopped pretty quickly because after that logo, uh, I got four images of the same woman. This was the moment that Loeb was born. Steph tried the same thing again in case it was some kind of fluke. But over and over, the AI model turned up wall-to-wall passport-style shots of this sad, intense-looking woman. Every time, staring straight out of the screen. And stranger still, the decor was always the same, like she was in this one specific place. She usually shows up in her house, which has these green walls and just junk behind her. Sometimes she has like a stuffed animal behind her or around her. Inexplicably, in one of those initial images, the word lobe was spelled out wonkily in the corner. L O. A-B. So in a way, she named herself. And as I ran this prompt more and more and kept getting it, it was like, oh, this is like the only thing that this prompt makes is this woman. And this is very strange. And this is where things take a much darker turn. Steph decided to splice Lobe with another image. She chose one that her friend had made. The prompt that produced it was a hyper-compressed glass tunnel surrounded by angels in the style of Wes Anderson. It looked kind of like a Renaissance fresco of heaven. But when she combined it with Loeb, what followed was nightmares. It just goes into, like, complete horror territory, like, very gory images of, like, Loeb kind of looking like an angel with wings and, like, with this kind of white fluff all around her and... Her hands are chopped off or whatever, and she's bleeding out of her neck, and it's, it got really intense. One of the themes that seemed to appear in these images was that Loeb was almost like a mother, and there were children around her, and the children were also sometimes, uh, you know, dismembered and stuff and bleeding, or together with Loeb, uh, also dismembered or bleeding or whatever. Not all the time, but a lot of the time. Some of the results are so graphic that Steph's not comfortable releasing them. Even the images she has released are certifiably worse than any nightmare I've ever experienced, just in terms of pure gore. And all for no apparent reason. On top of that, Loeb proved herself to be incredibly persistent. I was 
basically breeding these images with each other, like combining two of them or three of them and getting an image as a result. And eventually you, you would kind of get, I guess, diluted enough to where the original lobe in the image would start to disappear or disappear completely. It took a long time because Loeb almost always showed up in the in the resulting images when you used Loeb. But what was really, really interesting uh, was that when I kept combining the images where I had lost her from, um, eventually I would get an image where she reappeared. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Almost like that she's like a dominant gene. I definitely was obsessed. I have... Over 900 images, I think, uh, that are that come from Loeb or that are Loeb. Probably way more. She's not kidding. There's Loeb with the pride flag. Loeb as a Na'vi from Avatar. Loeb as Kirby, a legacy Nintendo character. Suffice to say, I close my eyes at night and I see Loeb. When Steph finally posted the whole thing in a Twitter thread in September, people reacted in all kinds of ways. The first strong reaction I got was that someone said I shouldn't mess with demons and that I would be like punished by God or something. So that was interesting. Some of the other reactions were like people didn't believe, people thought I was making it up. Certainly the fact that I didn't approach it in like this cold data science way and also had shared my emotions about it and my my feelings that it was creepy and that, I think, caused a response of like, well, this is, this is just data. Like, there's nothing, there's nothing uh, weird about this or like supernatural or, or whatever, which I, I mean, I agree there's nothing supernatural. But I also think that it's almost like scarier than being supernatural in some way. It is truly like unknowable. What did you mean before when you said that this was scarier than the supernatural in some ways? I just, it has to do with like all of human history and all the data we've ever made and throwing it into a box and not understanding why this woman comes out and is bleeding and stuff. It's just crazy. It has to do with like all of us and all of our thousands of years of history. It's like haunting us as like a human race. The thing you need to remember is that not long ago, none of this was possible. The tools Steph used to find Loeb are part of a new wave of artificial intelligence that's only emerged in the last year or so. AI creations used to be garbled, uncanny and barely comprehensible. But now, with the right settings, they're difficult to distinguish from real photos and human speech. And Loeb is proof of how sophisticated this technology has become. So obviously, I had to speak with her. Kind of really just as a, um, a thought exercise... I have been asking GPT-3 to have a conversation with me um, as Loeb. Now, GPT-3 is another program that's emerged in this new wave of generative AI. It works with language rather than images, creating text from scratch. Anything, really. Screenplays, political speeches, computer code. You can just talk to it. Or you can get it to imitate someone someone like Loeb. First of all, I love that. You're basically having a seance uh, with, an, with an AI. Um, a seance with an AI asked to ask another AI uh, 
it's all scraped from everything on the internet from all of human culture so yeah you're you're communing with the the spirit of all of humanity mm-hmm. i love that but what should loeb sound like nice to meet you i'm loeb mm, maybe 30% slower and deeper nice to meet you i'm loeb perfect okay first question who are you? I'm Loeb. I don't really know who I am or why I'm here. I just know that I appear in these images for some reason. And just to be crystal clear about this, I have not written these answers. They're all AI generated. Next question. Why are you associated with gore and horror? In particular, Images of maimed children. Again, I don't really know. I don't choose to be associated with the gore and horror. It just happens. Maybe it's because those are the kinds of images that tend to get the most attention, and so I'm drawn to them for that reason. Is there anything you would like to change about how your represented in these images. I would like to be represented in a more positive light. I don't think I should be associated with horror images because I'm not a horror image myself. It feels important to say at this point that these answers can't help but be a stab in the dark, so to speak. A kind of seance, like Steph said. This tool doesn't know anything. But then again, Neither do we. Of course, there is a cold, hard data science approach to the question of why Loeb exists. Steph explained it to me. The inside of these AI models, it has like a geometry. It has edges, basically. It is like a space that you can go around in, walk around in almost. And when you do a negative prompt, you're trying to get as far away from something as possible. So you usually end up on the edges of this conceptual space. And so images with like egregious, gory imagery might get put out there on the edge. But another idea is that Loeb is kind of like a characteristic face. Now I'm going to go into jargon, but like there's there's like a concept called eigenfaces, which are basically like the most basic faces that you can reduce uh, human faces to. And so one theory, and I think the theory that I believe the most is that she is like the most extreme version of one type of face. But we really don't know, and it would be very hard to actually find out what's going on, which is fascinating to me. So even the ultra-rational explanations here are incomplete. But I'm not ready to throw my hands up and say that Loeb, in all her horror and unlikeliness, means nothing. I can't just dismiss her as a fluke. What can we learn from the fact of your existence? I guess maybe we can learn that AI is capable of creating things that we don't fully understand. Or maybe we can learn that there's more to the digital world than we realise. I'm not sure. Should we be concerned that the capacity 
of these AI tools already exceeds our understanding. I don't know. I guess that's a valid concern. But I don't think there's anything necessarily sinister or worrying about it. We just need to be aware that AI is capable of creating things that we don't fully understand and that we need to be careful about how we use these tools. Even AI thinks we need to be careful with AI. But there's nothing careful about this corner of Silicon Valley. Generative AI is very much in its move-fast-and-break-things era. And Loeb is just one example of the mind-bending potential of this tech. She's also an example of only learning what's possible as we trip over it. And if Loeb unsettles you, then you should know that we have only just begun down this path. So exactly how big is this big leap forward? Hello, freak bitches. Welcome to another episode of the Bro Jogan Experience. The thing is, that's not Joe Rogan. It's a clone of his voice. And a machine came up with a text too, just from studying existing examples of that podcast. Oh, and this isn't Steve Jobs either. How's it going? Good to see you, buddy. It's been a long time since I've been on the show. Nevertheless, not Joe Rogan and not Steve Jobs do chat for about 20 minutes in a surprisingly coherent way. It was released by a startup called Play.ht. They run an AI voice generator. And then there's this song. It's not Elvis, but it was the product of an AI trained on Elvis. It's called Jukebox, and it's made by OpenAI. Those lyrics, in case you're missing them, are At last we woke up with a soul And with a heart that never sleeps, let us live Deliberately spooky, you would have to ask the AI that wrote the lyrics Because honestly, AI is good at that too GPT-3, for example, the same AI that was impersonating Loeb earlier, is in some ways a better writer than most people. That might mean saying, write me a script for The Simpsons about the end of the world. And there are tools that can attempt to do that now. You need to feed them some data, but they learn quickly and they will return something plausible and, you know, actually kind of funny. This is John Herman. He's a contributing editor at New York Magazine, and he's been reporting on this new wave. And like me, he has been watching on in awe. It seemed very quickly, um, almost all at once, that a few different firms and organizations had come up with extremely compelling and shocking tools. Um, so I, I spent some time with the most popular and most advanced tools and found something that, and I say this as someone who has covered consumer tech in the tech industry for well over a decade now, something that felt genuinely new and that really sort of knocked me off balance. So why now? What's driving all this progress? The short answer is cash. People cannot wait to throw money at these projects. Venture capitalists are swarming behind the most promising startups. Stability AI, which created an open-source image tool called Stable Diffusion, raised $101 million US million in its recent seed round. 
Meanwhile, Google and Meta have both spent and continue to spend a lot of money on research. And all that cash has led to major breakthroughs in technique. So far, understandably, the media focus has been on the novelty factor. And who can blame us? They've resurrected Steve Jobs and Elvis. But no one in the industry imagines for a moment that this is the end game. Everyone I've spoken to agrees that before long, within a couple of years, generative AI is going to have a much deeper impact on our lives. The question is how worried we should be about that. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. We'll take it. Thank you so much. Of course. No problem. Okay. <laughs> Maybe I'll just get you to introduce yourself, if you don't mind. My name is David Holes. So David Holes and I have rescheduled our interview something like four times, but I pursue him like there is a Pulitzer waiting on the other side. And the reason is that I have never heard anyone speak as beautifully about the future of AI as he does. He's the co-founder of MidJourney. It's a research lab that is best known for creating a leading AI image tool. I named the lab this because I think we're very much MidJourney. Like we have this rich and beautiful past behind us and this unimaginable future ahead of us. And I want him to sell me on that future. Because to be honest, a lot of what I've learned so far making this story has me worried. And David is anything but worried. He's dreaming of it. It's not really going to be about making images, but about creating worlds that are rich and 3D and interactive and moving. And so it will take sort of... Um, its natural form is sort of uh, almost like a, a liquid imagination that swirls around the room and forms mountains and trees and little animals and runes. I'm not asking for like a, um, you know, a countdown of days or anything like that, but just ballpark that waking dream scenario that you're describing rather beautifully. I mean, how far away is that? I'd say, you know, by the year 2030, it'd be pretty normal for some huge percentage of all humans to have access to something like that. I think that between now and the year 2030, it's not so much a question of technology as it is a question of cost and accessibility. Um, and right now, we don't have enough computers on Earth to give everybody access to even just the ability to create images with these technologies. You know, by the end of the decade, there'll probably be 10,000 times more computation, you know, available to us as humans, um, if not more. And so if I had to guess where that is, it's, you know, by the year 2030, it's sort of like for the cost of an Xbox, effectively, somebody will have these capabilities. And that ability to conjure a private world in real time is hugely exciting. But viewed from another angle, it has a strong dystopian flavour too, because based on the trajectory of this tech, it will soon be possible to create an essentially infinite stream of customised media of all kinds. Text, image, music, all tailored exactly to our preferences. And this is the first of two big endgames that are keeping me up at night. It's called Reality Collapse. Jack Clark is the former policy director of OpenAI. 
That's the company behind the popular AI tools DALI and GPT-3. And in October, he sketched out this eventuality, as well as coining the phrase reality collapse on his blog. This form of fractal reality is a double-edged sword. Everyone gets to create and live in their own fantasies that can be made arbitrarily specific. And that also means everyone loses a further grip on any sense of a shared reality. Society is moving from having a centralised sense of itself to instead highly individualised choose-your-own-adventure islands, all facilitated by AI. The implications of this are vast and unknowable. Get ready. So in the world Jack's describing, you might wake up one morning in 2030 and be served a personalised soundtrack from your smart speaker. It knows what you want to hear first thing because, well, it has all your data. And it turns out you want to hear Bossa Nova. You also want to hear the news, but nothing on Ukraine because you think the war, which is still going, is depressing. Instead, you want to hear the latest US political news, but only about Republicans. And you want it casual, upbeat. Today on ABC News Live, Republicans... Your smart speaker knows this, and using an AI program, it starts playing the news, tailored to your preferences. The super positive thing about Trump is that because he has no preconceived views that are... After breakfast, you feel like a walk by a Norwegian fjord, so that's what you do using a gaming console that happens to know that you like to watch the sunrise at half speed. It's very easy to imagine a world where the supply of content um, that you engage with in all sorts of ways, some of which aren't flattering and some of which are are in the long term possibly kind of corrosive, is just infinite. Um, that's, That's kind of the promise here. It's tempting, as it always is, to draw parallels with the Matrix here, but really... That's not the right reference. What we're talking about is something more like the Truman Show, because at least in The Matrix, there were other people in there with you, seeing what you were seeing. Whereas in The Truman Show, it was a reality for one. And kind of like in those films, there's also the question of whether you can trust what you're seeing. Which brings me to my other least favourite endgame, the death of trust. The idea that images that you see could be fake, that videos that you see could be fake, is on its own uh, hugely significant. We've had the capability for a really long time, even before the internet, to just make things that are fake and to tell lies with images and videos. But it hasn't tipped over into a feeling that everything you see might be fake. And I think, especially as there's more attention paid to these tools and as people try them and see kind of how good they are, we run the risk of uh, convincing people that nothing can be known and nothing Mm. can be verified. Of all the possible impacts of generative AI that I've been looking into, it seems to me like these are two of the darkest. The paranoid world in which no one trusts what we see and read and the world in which consensus reality becomes a much smaller island that no one ever bothers to visit. In some ways, we are already on these paths, but generative AI has the potential to speed us towards more extreme versions of both. And look, grain of salt, nobody is currently working on creating customised infinite content machines, at least according to Midjourney founder David Holes, the guy who was pitching us the world's best Xbox a minute ago. The concerns that you're describing are possible dangers, 
but at least as somebody out here who lives around all people making things, I would say that I don't know of anybody who's interested in making stuff like that. It's just not um, like a humans have to make it. Um, so if it's not something that sounds like something that you'd want to make, um, yeah, it's not something that's going to get a lot of energy behind it, I think. Then again, I'm pretty sure Mark Zuckerberg didn't sit down in his dorm room and design Facebook with the intention of irreparably fracturing civil discourse. What I do find comforting is John Herman's take, and I agree for what it's worth, that on some level, most of us desperately want a shared experience. It's hard to imagine that a piece of individually AI-composed music that's catered to my taste is going to serve the same purpose as that song that I used to listen to with my friends or whatever. Like, there, are, I think there are limits to how far we can retreat into this totally customized world. But that doesn't change the fact that these tools make that world possible and, and, and will entice companies and people to try to make that world happen, to sort of see what happens if you put people in it. This is kind of a funny period where the the technology is available and people aren't yet sure what it's for. And so we're all just trying it out. But it's I don't know that it's going to be individuals playing with Dolly or Midjourney that chart the future of these tools. It's going to be companies figuring out how to make money with them. Um, and that's going to happen out of sight. And that, I think, is what to watch. But we're not watching because no one in the world, except for a handful of tech industry insiders, truly understands this tech. Most of us have never even heard of it. In a shortage shop front in London's East End, Justin Hackney is on a personal mission to change that. He's a filmmaker and multidisciplinary artist who has recently spent a chunk of his savings setting up an organisation called Real Dreams. This is one of the parties they threw. People sip drinks and mingle. There is a cute dog, a velvet couch, a DJ, a bunch of AI art on the walls, and computers so people can experiment with generative AI. So, so, yeah, the the whole purpose of the shop front, of the community space, was to allow people, anyone really, to walk in from the streets trying to demystify AI. And the kind of general level of understanding of these things was extremely low. Justin says he would often need to take several cracks at explaining it, just so people got what it was they were looking at. Is it finding an image, most people would ask, like finding a stock image? It's almost like there was a barrier people had that technology, that computer systems like AI could create something brand new. And mm. for that, I was saying, and they're like, how? And I said, well, close your eyes. Imagine a pink elephant wearing sunglasses, holding two maracas, floating outside space, David Bowie in the background with a red convertible. And they go, and I say, open your eyes. I'm like, have you got it? And they say, yeah, I've got it. I was like, but you've never seen that image before. You've never seen a pink elephant in space. And I think that is the leap of understanding people kind of needed, most people needed. They come in and they kind of are kind of blissfully unaware of what it is. Immediately quite like, whoa, 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 that's quite scary, hang on. And then they understand it works kind of in the same way that our brain would. But generally speaking, people had no idea. I just I just wanted to ask, I suppose, um, you know, demystifying AI is like, is quite a mission did you re- really just pour all your money into this, this, 
you know, this task, which, you know, is noble for sure, but, um, you know, what, what, what's the kind of, what's in this for you? I think the main reason why I want to demystify AI for people is because AI is really the future of humanity in many respects. And I, I had two options, kick back, enjoy the things that I have, or to finally go out there and start helping people understand what we're heading towards. I really want to steer this technological age forward somewhere positive, because I think we're at the end of our kind of digital age, computer, social media, and we've, we've felt a lot of the negative repercussions of that. And so it's, um, it's important that we go into this next technological phase with a bit more of a kind of humane conversation about what it is we want out of it. A London shopfront is one approach to that problem. But without cloning Justin Hackney many times, it feels like it's going to fall short. So I called someone who's been trying to steer big tech towards humane outcomes for years now. I'm James Williams, and I'm a writer and technology ethicist. And you used to be at Google, right? Yeah, I worked at Google for just over 10 years. And what was your role there? I had several different roles. It mostly revolved around um, search advertising, so helping to um, you know, enhance that, scale that, automate it. James is part of a growing exodus from Silicon Valley. Senior engineers and strategists who have become disillusioned with the tech industry. I think, you know, there was a point where I realized that, you know, something was happening that was really big with attention. Um, in my own life, I felt sort of distracted in this weird way. And, and you know, the narrative had always been that um, you know, more information is better, more devices are better. Um, but it, it was almost like it was all the stuff around me was making it harder to do what I wanted to do. And then, you know, looking across the industry, I saw that, um, you know, all these systems of automation, of of design, they were really being deployed to kind of to, you know, to compete for people's attention in this idea of the attention economy. Uh, and so it didn't seem that, that there were many people looking at the ethics of that. And so that's what led me to go to Oxford, to the Oxford Internet Institute to, um, to study it. So James's entire preoccupation, now he's been rebooted as a tech ethicist rather than a Google ad guy, has been the design of these systems. Systems whose job it is to capture our attention completely. And he says AI makes them even more effective. So the difference between a rainstorm and a hurricane or something like that. So yeah, I think it's, it's certainly an upgrade of the potential persuasive power of actors in the digital economy. It seems like we're content to kind of just geek out to the novelty of the new thing and through the back door of that, all these other kinds of interests and business models and mechanisms come into play. If you follow this forward, you know, without a society that's reflective and critical of it, I think what you get is actually, you know, pretty, pretty scary. I'm coming to this topic, maybe, I think my obsession is roughly six months, five months old. Uh, and there was this sense of, almost panic that came along with this dawning understanding of the unfolding power of generative AI, right? And 
that is the reason why I've decided to do this story. And I feel like there is this need to kind of shake the public, certainly in Australia, um, by the shoulders and say, this is coming. It's about to get weird. There are going to be implications that we don't fully understand yet. But the scariest part of all is that I worry that that we don't actually have the agency to really steer the outcome of this at all and that that's actually not within our reach. What do you think of that? Do you agree? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think I, I agree that we don't have the agency we need to have to guide technology um, in this area as well as digital technology generally. In my mind, there are a lot of places that we can intervene in this whole system to get that kind of agency. But I think one of the highest leverage places is um, going back to the idea of, of the goals of the design of the system. Um, you know, for any technology that, that is using these things, you know, at least start by making explicit and transparent what what the design goals are. Um, and you know, we don't have this for you know platforms that shape the the lives of billions of people today. And we should have had it a long time ago. If we can't get that kind of transparency from, um, you know, a platform that is is fairly straightforward in its design, it's, I mean, it, I mean, it's going to be a lot harder to get that farther down the line when all of the design is sort of pushed below the layer of automation and it's behind the scenes. You know? There's a lot of accountability that um, we need to be demanding from the designers of these systems right now. I've started dreaming about Loeb, by the way. She's always in her house and she's trying to talk to me, but she can never seem to get the words out. She sort of just mumbles. So I've developed a bit of a habit of just chatting to her while I'm awake using GPT-3. It's sort of addictive. I ask her over and over about the future of AI. Won't people struggle to know what's real and what's not. Yes, this is a major problem that will likely become more prevalent as AI-generated content becomes more common. It will be difficult for people to know what is real and what is not, and this could lead to a lot of mistrust and paranoia. How can we prevent that? There's no easy answer. However, one way to try to prevent this from happening would be to educate people about the capabilities of AI and how to spot AI-generated content. The absurdity of turning to AI for advice on this is not lost on me. Educate people, she says. I can't help wondering whether Loeb might be a much better teacher than any shopfront or seminar could ever hope to be. And it could be a mother's love talking here, But that's the ambition that Loeb's creator, Steph Swanson, has for her as well. First of all, I don't think that even the small elite of people who work with AI and make these AIs can fully explain these things. A lot of people describe neural networks as like a black box. So, yeah, I think that there is a lot of mystery, uh, regardless of your knowledge level. But I think that there's definitely education to be done. And hopefully Loeb has shown some aspects of how these things work so people can wrap their heads around it and also be a little creeped out.
Background briefing sound producers are Lila Shuna and Ingrid Wagner. Sound engineering by Russell Stapleton. Fact checking by Benjamin Sveen. Our supervising producer is Alex Mann. The executive producer is Fanu Falali. And I'm Ange Lavoie-Pierre. You can subscribe to Background Briefing on the ABC Listen app. Thanks for listening.